Colliding Worlds is sponsored in part by Always Here, now streaming on Amazon Prime, starring Jody Littman, Angela Romeo, and Steve Ciceron. Always Here. Some say the rules are made by the future, but in the LaFleur home, the past controls the future. Join them and the entire cast of Always Here. After all, a mother's love is forever. Now streaming on Amazon Prime. And I'm going to say one of the coolest parts about doing a show like this, and I'm Angela Valenti Romeo, and it's my show, is you get to meet incredibly interesting people. And that's what makes it fun. And I met my guest, Jurgen Wolf, at a writer's group. He's fascinating. It's just, I can't explain it. You know when you meet somebody and you're like, my God, this man is brilliant. And he's interesting and he's articulate and he's not afraid. And I love that. And I want to welcome you to Colliding Worlds. Thank you. Thank you for those nice words, too. I appreciate that. You've had a pretty long career in in the entertainment field um, you, as a writer. Um, you've written plays. You've written books. You've taught. At this point in your life, what do you feel most proud of? Um, I guess a couple of things. One is from the teaching standpoint, um, I taught at EOC for a while. I've taught a lot of private workshops and so on and just helping people all writing courses and helping people to learn how to tell their story the way they want to tell it. Um, I think that's, that's very important and uh, has given me great pleasure. And uh, some of the writing, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of the times I'm, I'm writing initially for myself, but if it reaches an audience, that's great. So uh, I think some of the plays that have been produced uh, in particular, there's uh, one called Killing Mother, which was uh, done at the Gorky Theater in Berlin. Uh, and I was very happy with that production and uh, and proud of that particular uh, script. I think it's interesting when you, oh, it's it, like a painter, when a painter starts and they put that first brush onto the, you know, brush touches the canvas, you're committed. And when you write, you put that first word there, it starts you on a path, but doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily commit you, but it sends you on your way. And it's it's very difficult sometimes to know a beginning and an end. Um, I found when I started writing, I was worried about things that weren't important. Um, I was worried what somebody else would think. And 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 that was a it was a hard thing to to sort of stop self self judging yourself and. I've I've listened to you read some of your writings. I've seen what you've produced, and it's like you you're writing for an audience, but you're really writing for yourself. And, and I I don't know how one gets to that point. I mean, when you're mentoring or and teaching people or helping people, how do you how do you direct them to something like that, or do you just kick them in the head and go get out there and do it? <laughs> well, no, the point you've just made is one of the most important ones to impress upon people where especially with newer writers, beginning writers, they worry about, you know, how is this going to go over? Am I exposing my my own thoughts too much or my fears or whatever? And I always say, well, that's exactly what we want to see. And we're not going to judge you based on it, but um, writing that is coming from the heart is the writing that affects all of us. And uh, so first of all, uh, try to forget for a while at least all the formulas, and this is particularly in screenwriting, 
people are so focused on the three-act structure or the hero's journey or, you know, John Truby's 22 steps and so on, all of which are useful. I'm not putting them down at all, but they're a way of helping you to shape your material and you have to be aware of what that material is first. What's the story you want to tell before you worry about, you know, act two plot points or reversals and all that stuff? Uh, get Get clear on that or at least clear enough to start writing. There are some people that need to figure it all out before they start. There's some people who just start and and go along and bumble their way to it. Uh, and and that's, that's great too. Either way works, whatever works for you. But again, what is it you really want to convey to an audience and, and think that through uh, as much as you can? And you'll discover more as you go along, obviously. But you know, start with it with a strong idea of what it is you want to convey to an audience, and even within something very commercial. Like I, I started out writing sitcoms, but I found, kind of to my surprise, that even in those, uh, there was usually some little kernel uh, of the story that had relevance to me personally and came from a point of something that was, I don't know, either bothering me or that I was excited about or that I thought was important. I love that you were, that you did write for sitcoms, and I want to talk about that too because some of them were my favorite. When I started writing, what, what I what I found difficult was everybody said you need to have you need to have a space, and you need to have a whiteboard, and you need to have index cards, and all of this stuff, and colored markers, and you're so caught up in like getting set up that you and and then when I started writing and. And I would take a class and go, well, where, where's your index cards? And where's this and where's that? I'm like, mm. and I would go home and make them up because it was the only one. I, I, I found that sometimes thinking through it, I read the books and I took the classes and the hero's journey and three acts. You, what I was finding was you got bogged down in um, a paradigm that may not work the best for you. It may not work the best for what you're writing. And 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 that's that's what I think is kind of cool. You've like I say you've written sitcoms, you've written all kinds of things, and they're all different. But I I believe any true writing, whether it's movie or a book or a sitcom, there has to be some little element of of truth. Um, yeah, trust. You know, again, going back to what I, what I try to help people understand is trust that bit. You know. Uh, and and don't dismiss it because you oh maybe maybe this isn't funny enough or it isn't whatever you know uh, that is a real foundation of the story you're trying to tell, and the rest is helping you build a scaffold for it and fill it in and so on, but uh, don't lose sight of that because that's what's going to make your writing special. There's also a convention. Like I hear it every once in a while is uh, people like, oh, don't read other people's work and don't watch too much TV and don't do this because you'll be influenced by them. How do you learn if you don't watch and listen from somebody else? Yeah, that's not a bad thing to be influenced by them. Typically, you're influenced by the parts that make sense to you. And that's good. You're not trying to copy. You're not trying to say, I'm going to write it exactly like this person whose plays I've read or, or movies I've seen. But if it's if it's speaking to you, then there's a reason for that. And you can use that rather than dismiss it. I was at one time in my life, I was practicing law and I was um, shopping musicians and I had a guitar player and he was excellent. 
and I brought him to the label and the label looked at me and he said, we already have Steve Vai. Why do we need another one? He, he was technically perfect, but he had no originality, no, no voice. And sometimes with writers, you, you sit there and you think, I heard this before, or this sounds just like, and that individuality is, is, is not there. Um, to me, it's, I think it's, it takes away from. I think it takes away from the work, um, and and it's hard. It's it's very difficult. And who influenced you? I mean, did you just wake up one day and go, "I'm a writer. I'm really, you know." <laughs> I woke up and wanted to be a princess, so I I can't say much. Well, I think like a lot of uh, writers, I was kind of an introverted kid and writing stories. I love writing stories. I love watching television. And uh, one of my biggest influences was Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone. And in fact, uh, when I was a young teenager, uh, I had watched lots of episodes of Twilight Zone. He was kind of my hero as a writer because I knew that he'd written other things as well, plays and so on. And... Uh, I read in the newspaper, I was living in, in uh, the Bay Area at the time with, with my parents, obviously, and um, I read in the paper that Rod Serling had been admitted to hospital, and it said Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, and I wrote him kind of a fan note addressed to the hospital, having no idea whether it would get there or not, and said, Mr. Serling, I love Twilight Zone, and you're writing, and, and you're kind of my idol, and I hope to be a writer someday, and... Uh, never thinking I'd get an answer, but actually I got a short handwritten note from him back saying, thank you so much for thinking of me and I, I wish you good luck with your writing and I'm sure it'll, it'll be great, something like that. I unfortunately don't, I lost it. Years ago I had a house fire that destroyed everything oh. I had, including that prized note from oh. Sterling. But uh, that was the gist of it. And that was such an inspiration to me. I was so, uh, proud of that and and happy about getting that answer. Um, and uh, Twilight Zone, I think, is one of the real hallmarks of television because it used a popular genre of kind of mystery with a little bit of paranormal horror and stuff built in to make real points about prejudice, about all kinds of things. And uh, I think I'm still influenced to this day by, by that. So that was one of the big big kind of steps along the way. Um, and I always loved writing stories, you know, in school, it was my favorite thing to do. And, uh, and loved movies and, and television, all forms of storytelling that I could get. Rod Serling was interesting. And I, and I love Rod Serling, and it, even as a little kid. And I remember watching the, the crappy footage of Requiem for a Heavyweight. And that was, I think, Playhouse 90. It was probably done in 1954, I think. It was an amazing piece of writing. And what I liked about Rod Serling and kind of what I like about what, what you do is there's a little bit of a reverence what's going on. Rod Serling rebelled, and he put up topics that people did not want to see on TV. He, he said things that people didn't want to see. And he was really berating the writing. And this is in the 50s and 60s where, you know, commercial television was just starting. And he basically said, you're, you know, you, you're going to you're going to have 12 ducks selling toilet paper and you're going to call that writing. And he's, he, he disagreed with it. it. It was it was interesting that that show has stood the test of time. 
it's still relevant. Any any episode you pick is still relevant today. That he had to fight so hard. I mean, I and I if you put it in context, it was after the whole McCarthy where people were blackballed. And he was still, he was, I think, borderline. I think they would love to have silenced him at a certain point because he just refused. And it's, it's brave. I mean, when you're a writer and you have something to say, it, it's, it's good. You have to be brave. You, you have to be. And a true writer, and, and what I've seen of yours and what I've read, if you're a true writer, it's, you're, you're writing with a purpose, you're writing with a passion, and it may be controversial, but it's at least it's real and it's true. And, and you have to, you get to have people think. And I think that that's, I think when you're an artist of any sort, you have a, a you have a huge responsibility to history. You are creating something that's going to last way after, way after we're gone. Those, those things last. I mean, it's a legacy of sorts. And when you look back over your work, do you, do you sometimes think about it that way or is it out of sight, out of mind? Well, I try not to think of it that way in a way because it sort of places a, a pretty big burden on you uh, if you stop thinking about it too much. But you're right. And I, and I think one of the things I admire about Serling was he beat them at his own game. He made up this show, which was very successful, and slipped in the messages that he wanted about racism and all kinds of things and uh, things that they would have denied normally, but because it was a successful show, uh, they went along with it. And that was that was one of his skills that I really admire. Um, and yeah, I mean, he, I don't know that he thought in his lifetime that it would last this long, but it has. And the, the points are still relevant today. So I think definitely that's something that, that one hopes for as a writer. Some Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but that's certainly one of the things that, that uh, you hope will happen with one or two pieces, maybe. You never know. I mean, I look. I I, I like to read and like to. I like to see history. I mean, not see history. I like to read about history and follow along. And I look at on the Twilight Zone before we move off of that. I guess, but at that time, the only real, you know, the only thing that was really political were the cartoons. You had Rocky and Bullwinkle, and you had the Flintstones, and you had a few others that were very political. And they weren't never meant for children, but they got away with it because they were, you know, not real. Um, and, and there was some. And, and today you have South Park, and you have Family Guy, and you, I hate to say, we even have Beavis and Butthead. I don't know, but they say things that that people are may think but are afraid to say, or a writer may want to write but they're afraid to write. And it's it's a, it's a censorship. I'm not sure that we need um and, and yeah, again that's, that's a good point cartoon i love cartoons and and part of the reason was that you you could take it on two levels i mean if you, you could watch them bopping each other over the head and running around and so on and that was fine uh, as far as entertainment or, you know but they often did slip in a, a very sometimes settled sometimes not so subtle but uh, uh expressions of how the creators felt about certain things and it was quite a subversive thing to do and admirable because of that. <laughs> you got to laugh. I mean, you also worked on some animation as well. I mean, other than, you know, you did some animation work, you worked on sitcoms, you worked on dramas. 
there's a big difference between writing a sitcom and writing a drama, at least I think. What did you like? What did you find more enjoyable as a as a writer, the sitcom or the drama? Um, my favorite genre, I suppose, is is would be comedy drama or drama with elements of comedy to 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 make it easier. Perhaps it's like the making the medicine go down. You know, just one quick <laughs> thing before before we get into that. Um, talking about animation, um, I used to watch the Woody Woodpecker show because Walter Lance at the end would have a drawing lesson. And I also do cartooning. I haven't done it professionally very much, but I, mean, I, like, I enjoy it. And uh, another one of the uh, great moments for, for me, uh, harking back to childhood idols and all that, was that uh, I worked for a company in, in LA and uh, went into the office. And I noticed that Walter Lance Productions had an office next door. Now, he wasn't actively doing uh, Woody Woodpecker anymore. In fact, he was, I don't know how old he was. He seemed old to me at the time, but I was young. So he probably wasn't much older than I am <laughs> for that. But I, I knocked on the door and there was Walter Lance. And uh, I had a great chat with him. He was very friendly and open. And uh, he, Before I left, he said, uh, would you like me to draw Woody for you? And I said, absolutely. And again, sadly, that was one of the things that, that oh. uh, went up in the fire. But uh, it was a great moment of meeting her one of your childhood heroes. Uh, you know, so anyway, it's sort of a side note. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, as I said, I think comedy drama often um, helps to deliver, I don't, I don't think in terms of messages per se, but um, you know, it's not a moral. I'm not trying to teach people good is better than evil, but um, there is usually, as we said before, kind of a heartfelt kind of element to it that's some, in some ways either your story or a story that means a lot to you. And I find um, if you can leaven that with some comedy along the way, it, it really makes it easier for people to to consume it. I think sometimes with comedy, it's... I read this book one time, and it was the, the science behind comedy. It was like, four inches thick and it was filled with all kinds of like the, you know, well, we did this test, we did that test and the analytical studies were and I'm like, the end, the guy slipped on a banana peel is it funny? Yeah. Okay, why? No reason, it's funny but I think sometimes with comedy like when you watch some of these shows and, and you had family ties that you worked with and Benson and a few others it's like people look at themselves and they go, they see themselves and they go, I'm really not that bad or it makes them feel like, well, if it happens and they identify with the character, it's like, well, it happened to them and it happened to me, so I must be okay. Um, it's it, it, it's kind of like a funny thing when, when, you, when you get involved in a show, like a comedy, like a situation comedy, whatever, people react to the character and they find that, I think they try, they find themselves in some way, you know, or, what was it? But what was it like? I mean, I, I I used to love watching Benson. I liked Inga Swenson. I just liked everything about her. But when you were working on that kind of a show, uh, was it was it a writer's room situation? Was it uh, you know you wrote a script, a one-off script? I mean, how how did work work doing working on those types of shows? I wasn't on staff, so I did some scripts uh, by myself. Um, uh, wasn't involved with the writer's room and the way it worked was, and it still works, I believe that a lot of the scripts are done by the writing staff, of course, but then when they have some extras um, that they want to farm out to freelancers, then you go and you pitch your ideas. I pitched, 
I think typically five or six, maybe seven maximum ideas, just just log line, just little sentences. Benson, you know, uh, Benson's long lost brother comes to visit or whatever. That wasn't a real one, but just as an example. And um, and if they like one of those, then they ask you to develop it further into a full outline. Then they give you feedback on the outline because, of course, they they know their show better than anybody outside could possibly, even if you watched all of them. So you get useful um, feedback from them, input. Then you do the rewrite. Usually it's two drafts and a polish. Sometimes they will, uh, you know, they will do a polish on it of their own. Uh, maybe there's something they want to put in that could be foreshadowing of an episode they want to do later or something like that. And um, and then you uh, then you go and uh, you're invited to the taping of that episode. And that's fun to see it in front of a live audience. Usually there are two tapings, one in the afternoon, one in the early evening. And uh, then they use the laughs from which, whoever it went best and the, and the takes from whichever went best or, or a mixture typically. And so that's fun also, a chance to see, um, it's almost like you've written a play and you can see it per performed. Obviously it's somebody else's characters, but at least you see it in front of a live audience. And sometimes that's very helpful in uh, kind of helping you to viscerally get what works and what doesn't work. This is funny. The first time you see your work, well, hear your work or see it performed, it, I, the first time I wrote something and other people were saying those words, it was like, well, I wrote those words. And it was very, I want to say unnerving, but it was just really interesting to to watch them and or have see how people would take the words and, and give them a, their own, in, their, give them a twist to themselves or something you didn't expect. And it was a, it was a very odd experience. Do you remember the first time you heard your, not in school, school doesn't count. <laughs> Professional when you, when you wrote it and you're like, I got paid for this, you know, and you hear it. Yeah. And if it's delivered, I mean, I, I think Robert Guillaume was great, uh, Benson. And uh, so to hear it from people like that um, is, is terrific. Um, I'll tell you one story. Um, I don't know if I should name names or not. Maybe I won't, but I'll tell you the story anyway. Um, I had written a, a script for one particular sitcom as a freelancer, and they liked it. And then the uh, they asked me to do another one. So this was the second one. And uh, then, of course, you're sort of hoping that this, the first one wasn't just a fluke, that they'll like what you do the second time. So I turned in the second script and did not hear anything. And um, then some weeks later, I got a, um, a call saying, oh, your, your episode is being shot on Friday. Do you want to come see it? And I was shocked because having not heard anything, I assumed the worst. And in fact, uh, before that, I called the, uh, the office and one of the, one of the writers answered. And I said, um, I'm just wondering what's happening with the script. And he said, oh, um, Arnie, oops, I've let the name slip. I won't say the last name. Arnie, the producer, threw it against the wall on Monday morning. And then he got called away, the guy I was talking to. And I thought, oh, no, this is terrible. He threw it. It must be awful. And then so when they asked me to come to the taping, I said, well, I haven't heard anything in between. Um, and so-and-so said that Arnie threw it against the wall on Monday morning. And the guy said, Arnie always throws something against the wall on Monday morning. You know, he, he I don't know whether she'd derive the idea that his home life maybe was not, I don't know why, but he was in a bad mood Monday morning. Let's put it that way. 
I said, yeah, but you didn't ask me to do a rewrite. And they said, no, we loved it the way it was. So somebody should have told you that, but nobody did. So that That's was kind of a week of, of horror, but ended up well. So. It's, it's it's funny how you're at the mercy of other people when you when you do things like that. And the other the other thing I had when I was practicing law, I had people who wrote books, wrote, and they would get optioned. We would, and, and the coolest thing was when sometimes the option was a dollar, sometimes the option was more. I had a client where she had written a book, and they optioned it for a substantial sum of money. And we sat around like, who's going to play us? You know, um, they never made the movie but they held the option and, and her attitude was, I don't care. This is the seed money to do something else. I had another client who they optioned the book and the screenplay other than the title was so far away from the original story. And he was devastated. And I said, but part of what you signed away as, as the writer was allowing them to, to run with it. And that was kind of a hard, a hard, um, lessons so to speak um you're a writer when you toss yours to someone else for a rewrite i mean how how involved do you want to be or how how do you step away from it when it's not what you had hoped that's the hardest part of this i found over the years that you know if you're dealing with people who really are dedicated to making the story the best it can be whether it's a film or tv show whatever it is or theater production that's great. And if they come up with ideas that make it better, I welcome that with open arms. Uh, I don't think, you know, it's not like, oh, it's untouchable. But um, unfortunately, a lot of the time, particularly in the television industry, in the film industry, you have people who are more interested, for example, in showing they can change something. Or sometimes a director wants to put their imprint on it, but it's more about their ego than about actually improving the story or, or the way it's done. And I always find that extremely difficult when uh, sometimes I would watch something, it didn't happen with the sitcoms particularly, but but sometimes with other things I've done, I, I see the final thing and I think, yeah, that isn't, that isn't what I had in mind, that isn't my thing. Um, again, if it's really good, even though it's not my thing, that's not so bad. But uh, sometimes the most ridiculous reasons, there was actually one sitcom, this was in Germany. I, I for a number of years, worked um, for a, an American company that was developing sitcoms and other shows for Germany, Columbia TriStar. And uh, one of the, I created a show, co-created really with the star of the show. And um, one of the episodes had a, a situation where um, there is a, a man who is, it's kind of a catfishing thing where he's quite a bit overweight and he sends a different picture, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, the, the, the point of the thing was be yourself because you can't fool anybody for very long, whether it's about your beliefs or about your weight or your appearance or anything. Anyway, um, and they said, well, um, we have to change this uh, about his being overweight. And I said, why? We're not... It's not a judgment of people being overweight. That's not the point. The point is misrepresentation, not what he weighs. They said, "Yeah, but that the executive at the network that that is going to do this is overweight, and we're worried that maybe he'll be offended." Well, you know, that <laughs> moments like that kind of make your heart sink a bit. Oh yeah, you sit there and you work so hard, and you and you create something, and 
you like I said, sometimes you toss it out. I mean, right now I'm working on my own show, so no one can override me. <laughs> you know, it's good to be it's good to be in charge sometimes, which is good and bad. It's got its good points and its bad points. But it, it every time you write or every time you do something, I feel like you should learn and you should never stop learning. And you've you've been writing and you've worked in Europe, you've worked here, you've worked there, you've worked in animation, you worked with children, you worked adults, you did all all of these things, but the world is constantly changing. And now and now we're being hit head on, like boom, with AI. And and, and AI scares people and other people embrace it. Um, I know that when the actors SAG was on strike, one of the big things they were fighting against was the use of AI, the writer strike, all about AI. In, in, my, in my view, at that point in the game, the, the, the cat was already out of the bag. I mean, AI was already there. So now you're trying to you know, shove it back in and it doesn't work. No. You as a writer and you as a creative person and you as an incredibly intelligent man, how do you how do you deal with AI encroaching on everything? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a huge topic, and I've kind of made a point of trying to uh, learn as much as I can about it, how it's used, and so on. Um, one of the programs that is very popular is called Mid Journey, which creates images based on text you put in, or you can even put in other images and then it'll it'll change it in whatever way you want. Um, so I'm fascinated by it, but I see that there's a huge change coming. I don't, as you said, it's it's too late. It's it's here, it's going to be here. And the best we can hope is hope for is to to learn how to use it and to mitigate the the damage it's going to do um, to so many people and for example not just not just writers we'll come back to that but um, there's a, uh, a program called 11 labs which mm -hmm. does voices and um, you know up until recently you could tell when it was a, a, a voice that was done digitally uh, I think now it's very hard I think in, in fact most people uh, wouldn't be able to tell the difference at all and they've now got a feature where before you wrote the text, it spoke the text, but that didn't have much nuance. So if there was a, a line to be said with disgust, it would still just say it the normal way. So they've got a feature called speech to speech where you can read what you've written or um, with the intonation, the uh, emphasis, the emotion that you feel it needs and then choose a voice and it will read it with your intonation. Now, um, that's great in one way because I, I love audio uh, drama. Uh, many years ago, I wrote for a series called Moments of Terror, which was on radio in, in, in England. Um, so this makes me, it makes it possible if I wanted to create a whole audio drama, even a longer one uh, with several different voices and it's something I probably couldn't do um, because to hire all the voice actors and so on would be pretty expensive. Um, but at the same time, I have a friend who is one of the top voice actors here in England, and she's won BAFTAs and on all kinds of awards. She does a lot of work for the gaming industry. And um, I just think 
Okay, she's well-established. I think she will continue. And she's uh, she's not old, but she's not just starting out. And so I think she'll be okay for the next five, six years that she probably will want to continue with it. But anybody starting out now as a voice actor, I don't know if there's going to be a market for them. And the same with writers. At the moment, AI does nonfiction writing pretty well. Not fiction yet, fortunately, not scripts. I've tried it just because I want to see what, where, you know, where along the continuum is that. Uh, but I, I have no doubt that in a few years it will be able to do so. And, and with art also, uh, some amazing images it creates. It used to be at the beginning, the default style was kind of cheesy, you know, um, it, you could detect it, but not so much anymore. And I do enjoy, just for my own pleasure, um, trying, for example, to put into as a prompt for Midjourney or one of the other image creation programs, something like his final decision or um, a man betrayed or whatever it might be, just to see what it comes up with. Because I'm not telling it, show a man with his head in his hands and blah, blah, blah. And just to see what the images are that come up. And sometimes they're quite amazing. But, it's, it's. I was going to say that's. It's interesting, but but there's that but to it. It's like, what are you watching when you, you you shared a a, a video in a one of our writers groups, and it was totally generated by you using AI. It was pretty difficult to see that it was not real people's you know it wasn't real actors it was all it was all done on the computer it was virtually impossible to distinguish it it's i think that impact is is what has people scared yeah i mean again it's something i couldn't have produced um without ai because i would have had i mean there were pictures of people marching and and confrontations with the with the police in one scene and so on, stuff that I never as an individual would have been able to create. And so as an individual creator, um, I, I, I'm glad I can do that, but I certainly recognize that um, the impact it's going to have on actors and writers um, and, and many other people, of course. For example, right now I saw that they now have a program that does translation in real time. And you can yeah. do it on the phone or there's a wearable. So you're traveling in Italy. You don't speak Italian very well. And you ask somebody for directions or whatever. You know, you speak it into your device and it speaks it or translates it. And a voice in Italian asks the person opposite. And they tell you and then you hear it in English, stuff like that. Well, you know, translators, um, tour guides and language teachers eventually, because I don't know how much longer people will want to learn languages if it's so easy right. to get along without it. So a huge, huge Im impact it's going to have. And I wish I had a, a great answer. I do think on the artistic side, there will come to be a, a particular cachet to having art that is done by a human being totally or, or mostly. Um, but for the jobbing illustrator, graphic designer, etc., I just don't know, you know, they say, well, we'll learn how to use it as a tool. Well, that's great, and that will be the case, but that's true for one out of 10. The other nine won't be needed anymore because the AI is filling in that stuff. So 
um, we're facing, I think, a, a revolution that is on the scale of the Industrial Revolution, but instead it's happening so quickly. The Industrial Revolution took a while to, to progress and, and, and you know, to, to get to the point uh, of, of reaching its maturity. This is moving so fast um, and so much money is being put into it. I just read mm -hmm. this morning that Eleven Labs, that, which is the voice one I'm talking about, not the translation, but the using the artificial voices, was valued uh, not long ago at 100 million, and now it's valued at a billion dollars, um, which tells you something about what people expect uh, for it to be used in the future. Um, so I, I wish I had an answer. All I suggest is do try to stay up with it because ignoring it, it can't help you. It, you talked about the translator and I, John, my other, my other half, he's going to India and I'm not going with him. He's going alone and blah, blah, blah. I got him the device. It sits in his ear, any language he'll, he'll, it'll hear it and it, it, it will help him. I had friends who traveled and then we get flabbergasted. They would sit there with their babble and the Rosetta stone. It's not, not going to help you. It's going to make, so it may make travel easier. I have friends who were artists, who were illustrators, and you look at these, the programs now, the, you, their jobs, as you say, are slowly going away. Um, they don't need that many people. Um, writers, you know, I, I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus went to AI, Chat AI and asked it to write her acceptance speech. And she read it and she gave it little parameters and it was, it was not quite there yet, but you look at it and I, I go back to, go back to Rod Serling, go back to the twilight zone where everybody would pick the body that they wanted and they would go in and they would be this person and everything would be great. And it, it is a frightening thing because where does it leave human creativity? Um, where does it leave? I, I'm 65. I look back and when I was a little kid, you read, you colored, you ran outside, you scraped your knee, um, you got bored, you learned to make 20,000 things out of a six inch piece of string. I, I can, I look at, I look at, you know, my younger, my grand nephews and nieces and it's like, okay, I have an iPad and if I wanted to do this, it can do that. There's no, I, I, I fear sometimes a loss of, a loss of human creativity, um, you know. I mean, yeah. And you're a teacher and a writer. And how do you? I mean, how do you? How do you instill people the idea? Still, it's like AI is great, but you know. Yeah, I mean, it. It's still the the, the heart of the idea has to come from you, um, and AI is a, a way of synthesizing things, and it. The, the big question is, at what point does imitating creativity become so good that it might as well be creativity? You know, that's, is there a point that, that we reach with that? Um, I don't know. I do think that the human creature is, is inherently creative, and we will always find a way to express that. What that, I'd love to, I don't particularly want to live 100 years, but I'd love to move 50 years ahead, let's say, and just have a peek and just see how people are doing it and what's happened. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's impossible for us to imagine it right now, but I do have faith that 
that that drive is there. And if it's no longer done through uh, drawing pictures the way the AI can do, it'll, it'll come out in some other way. I don't know what it would be. Um, I think right now, as I said, it's kind of a very ambivalent feeling I have about it because it enables me to do things I never was able to do before. Uh, on the other hand, if that keeps going, then it won't need me to do things I never was able to do before or anybody else. That's that's the real question. What, How is that drive going to be expressed in the future? It, it's funny when you you look at things like I, I, there was a, a joke a couple of years ago that this was, I think it was two years ago was the day, was the year that George Jetson was born, you know, so in the, and now we all have flying cars and we do all these things. And there was that song from the sixties, 25, the year 2525, mm -hmm. you know, and but we're, that 2525 is a lot closer than it was before. Um, I, I go back and look at the creativity of people and you're a writer and you, and you, in, in writers and artists, I mean, anytime there's a revolution, the writers and artists seem to be the ones that are, you know, shunned first. But there needs to be a voice, and I don't. I I worry about, you know, people who are writers that will that will lose that voice of reason and will become beige. We will all be a crew. We won't. There won't be any any free thought. I mean, that that's the, that's the coolest thing about about reading and writing and people who who create those things is to stimulate dialogue. I I worry sometimes, maybe I'm the only one, I don't know, worry that this AI push will will end end dialogue. And then that's that to me is that that to me is the most frightening thing. Well you're certainly not the only one. Yeah, I think everybody not in addition to being concerned for our livelihoods, which is certainly a strong concern. But in addition to that, being concerned that we somehow still are able as individual human beings to get our points across or our view of life across and so on. It may be that uh, it becomes more of a, of a minority in the sense that uh, opera is now or theater to some degree is, but the theater will become more popular um, because it will have live human beings. Now, it's also true, of course, that they're working on this. In London, there's the ABBA Voyage uh, production with, with uh, uh, holograms, essentially, of them. And I read they're doing one of Elvis. But, but I don't think that's going to be true for quite a while, for, for, you know, by and large. So maybe live theater will have a new cachet because it is humans, and they're doing things written by humans, and that's part of the appeal. Now, what I, on the other hand, on television and film, where the profit motive is extremely strong and driving whatever happens, uh, unlike theater, where often people are doing it for the love of it and they find patrons and so on, uh, in those profit, above all minded uh, uh, scenarios, that that's where AI is going to have the heaviest impact, um, and we can withstand it and fight back up to a point. As as was shown by the by the strikes and and the resulting contracts, but I think those contracts are the last time probably that we we would be able to put up any sort of substantial resistance to these things. Um, you know, if if AI is good enough to do what the writers are doing, and the writers go on strike, the money people won't care. Why why care. would they care? You know, so um, and and yeah, go ahead. No, it's, it's, and I agree. I mean, that's, it was, that was kind of the problem. It was what, what I 
I objected to, I did not vote for the strike as an actor. Um, and, and my, 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 my argument was, and, and I kind of felt it with the other strike is that you are now showing them they don't need you. And in, in, when they had the first writer strike years ago, it, it birthed all kinds of reality television, which doesn't really have any writers. It doesn't really have anybody. They just get out and do it. And so the second strike that rolled around, anybody who was involved in AI, and I had friends who opened up massive studios that they thought would be vacant forever. They were packed because they didn't need union actors. They didn't need union writers and they could create something for a fraction and the actors didn't care how long they worked. There was no sitting there with, with and the secondary thing, the union, the teamsters, the makeup people, they didn't need any of them. So it was, it was, it just kind of bothered me. I, I just didn't, I, I didn't want to go on strike because I didn't want to have that window open because I, I, it's open and you got to close it. Um, yeah, it goes yeah. back to watching. We're back to Rod Serling again. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, I can see both both sides of that. Um, yeah, it's it's very difficult to know what's again. As I said, I have I have some confidence in the human heart and the human spirit of finding ways to express itself. That that, uh, but it's going to be you know it's going to be a painful period. Most revolutions are. The industrial revolution was painful for a lot of people where machines started replacing people and then to find a new equilibrium. This uh, is in some ways similar. And what that equilibrium is going to be, I don't, I don't know. But um, until then, I think we just have to keep telling our stories. And um, I don't have any objection in because I've been testing AI programs just out again to see what can they do, what can't they do, where's, you know, where's it going? And um, uh, for nonfiction work, I don't th see anything wrong with using it to help you write an outline. I think, unfortunately, we are going to be swamped with both fiction and nonfiction books self-published uh, via Amazon that are done by AI mm -hmm. by people who actually maybe not have any interest at all in storytelling or or even the topic that the nonfiction topic that the book is about. So you're getting a lot of mediocre work, um, a flood of it, uh, as AI gets better at doing these kinds of things. Um, so um, again, I do believe there will be maybe a section of, of Amazon that where these are humans telling human stories. And, and some people, at least, I hope a lot of people will be attracted to that and will opt for that, even if technically what they're doing can be matched. You know, I think for certain things like, you know, I, I know someone who writes romance novels and she kind of just churns them out and, mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't be too sorry. Apologies to her if she sees this, but <laughs> I don't think it's a big deal if those get done by AI because they're sort of done by AI already in a way. Uh, but for for other things, um, again, I hope that that there will be enough people who say, you know, I value the human touch, uh, and I want to reward the people who have it and and present it to me. Now, maybe that's being naive. I don't know. I mean, I, I look back at another time in my life, I owned an art gallery and I had a thing, no digital photography. I just, everybody who had a camera thought they were Ansel Adams. And yes, people, Ansel Adams was a very famous photographer, or they thought they were Francis Ford Coppola because they could shoot a movie on their iPhone. And you were inundated with mediocrity. And that was the standard. How mediocre can you be 
and you you have to ship through you got to go through and ship through all of this stuff to find the gems and it was funny how when digital photography came, and that's how I equate it to AI, it came and people were like very dismissive of it. And the next thing I know, it was impossible to go and to find the chemicals to develop, you know, you couldn't, you, you, and then to, to buy the chemicals to develop your photography, you had to go through, you know, you think you were building a bomb for kind of, they made it, they made it very difficult. Film, film disappeared in, in, Polaroid, Kodak, all these things disappeared in favor of digital. It was, it happened quickly. Um, AI is, is in at the same time, it was good. It allowed people like me to start a TV show, to, to do this, to podcast. It allowed so many other things. AI, I think, is going to be faster. Um, I think the impact is already being felt. I worry. I don't want it to think for me. I love the projects you did with the AI, and they were controversial, and I would love to have shown some too. I had no problem doing that. But you thought the AI didn't think for you. The AI put it together. And and my fear is, is that people are going to, are going to find the least common denominator and allow AI to think for them. And that's, that's, that's what I worry about mostly. Um, and you're, like you said, you've, you've been a teacher, you've been a writer, you've worked in different genres. It's like, it, it, do we stem the tide? Do we roll with it? And, you know, 50 years from now, man, I want to look back and go, I don't want to be sitting there going, yeah, I remember when we had pens. You know, it's like, uh, I, so funny, funny you should mention that. Let me see. I've got my fountain pen here. Which I love the, fountain like, pens. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? You had to, I mean, remember penmanship lessons and learning to write with that? We, I went to school, we had to learn how to use a fountain pen. I don't know why. I think it was just tradition. That's what they did. And you smeared it all over the place. But <laughs> I, I, I worry about that. And, um, and I don't want to see brilliant minds and people with creative things to say, like you, be replaced by by AI. But you you found a way to at least live with it, and and not let it overtake you. And I think that's important. And before we sign off and we move on, is there do you have any parting words for like a beginning writer who's like facing this, or any artist really? Well, I think um, you know don't. Don't despair, even though there may be some cause for despair, but just to nourish that urge that you have to to write and and express yourself. And you'll find new ways of doing it. And you may have to adapt uh, a lot to whatever is going to happen in the next 10 years, which, you know, normally not much happens about writing in 10 years. I don't know if there's uh, other than the invention of the printing press, I suppose that was a pretty big deal. But in general, writing hasn't changed hugely over any 10-year span. I think that's going to change. But what isn't going to change is that you're going to have feelings you want to express, you have stories you want to tell. And I think to the degree that AI can help you tell those in the way that you like, take advantage of it. And also keep your eyes and ears open and, and so hope maybe somebody watching this will even be the one to think of some new ways to express their stories. Um, uh, 
But you know that impulse isn't going away. And so what we need is people to find new ways to express it. And to, to uh, I think the more that that's an authentically, the greater appeal those stories have, rather than the kind of by the numbers stuff that that a lot of AI will be. Well, you can write your you can write your next Hallmark movie using AI, or you can write the next War and Peace just being human. I, and I one more thing I was just going to say is that um, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. He was visiting me here in, in Palm Springs, and uh, he created one of the top TV series. Uh, worked for a lot in television, and um, he's retired now. And I'm sort of semi-retired. I, I, I never was fully occupied you know, employed most of the time anyway. So it doesn't feel any different. Um, but I was saying, are you still writing? And he said, no, I've, I'm, I'm done with it, I think. And that shocked me in a way because I'm still writing stuff. And actually, on, of course, I wanted to be seen. But on another level, even if you said right now, this thing you're working on now will never be seen, never be produced. Are you sure you want to keep going with it? I would because that's, I don't know, it's part of me. I want to express that if nobody sees it. Okay, I will have had the experience myself of of going through it and learning from it and clarifying my own thoughts and so on. And so I would say even for people, um, if it's not a profession, and it may maybe it won't be available as a profession, do it anyway, because the rewards of writing are far beyond having people see it and, and clap. Those are good. But you know it it, it serves an internal need that uh, uh, is difficult, I think, to reach any other way. So at the very least, keep doing that. I believe that we're all born artists. I, I truly believe that. And I think I think being born an artist, that's part of who we are. It shapes our world. I, I worry and I hope people still go forward and create and write and paint and draw and think. My, my, my fear is I it's the Montessori school. We'll all go to the same common denominator. We won't, we won't move forward. I, I hope people still continue to write and create and have independent thought. And, and again, someone like you, I've, I've seen, I've seen some of what you've done with AI and it's amazing. Um, but it's still you, it's still a point. And that to me was when I, when I first met you in the group, then I heard you speak and I, and I heard your words and I, and I saw some of what you did. I was like, it's real. It's genuine. It's, it's no machine is going to create that type of emotional response. And, and that to me was, that's why I was harping on this man for, since I started this podcast, I need you on my podcast. I need you on my podcast because it, it was so rare and it was so pure and it was so strong that you just had to sit back and go, oh my God, I, I want to know more. I want to know everything. And I'm like, what is he teaching somewhere? Where can I go? You know, it's like, I, I, I don't want people to lose that. And I don't want people like you to get lost and sucked into the, you know, I'm not going to write because AI can do it for me. And I'm, I am, I was blown away by you when I met you. I am in awe of what you've done. I want to grow up and be as brave as you are. Um, well, I, I think also, you know, you you alluded to the to your show. You've done an amazing thing of of creating a whole series, and, and I know you're doing more episodes uh, with with uh, resources far fewer resources than the you know a TV studio typically has or a TV production company. 
and you're using it to tell your stories or stories that appeal to you and getting it out there on Amazon Prime and, and other ways, I think that's wonderful. So you know, you're know, you an inspiration to people, I think, who have that idea, but don't have the access necessarily to the the end to the to the business world of, of TV and film. You got to just do it. This, this though, Colliding Worlds has been my passion project because like I said at the onset, it lets me meet people who are, I think, to be incredibly interesting. And, and in the course of doing this show and writing articles and having the TV, having another radio show, there's over 2,000 plus interviews I've done. And it's, it, it's amazing to me what the human mind can create. And I enjoy, I enjoy every second of doing the show when I, especially when I get to meet people like you. And I, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're on vacation. Um, it's, it's pouring rain right now in Palm Springs, so no one's going anywhere without a lifeboat. But seems I, like, I do seems like London. I, I live in London most of the time. It seems like home when I look out the window today. So you're like, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm not, it was, you know, it's, it's funny when you go places and what you think you're going to be, but yeah, I remember being in London going, I'm cold. <laughs> Does it ever get warm? Am I cold? <laughs> I love my London fog and my Macintosh. There you go. Um, I appreciate the time you spent with us. I, I really do. And I thank you for it. No, it's been, been my pleasure. Thanks. This has been colliding worlds and you know, people think it, it's really not that hard. You burn calories you know, helps you lose weight. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you going. But when you think and you have something to say, or you don't have something to say, at least think, open up a dialogue with people. AI cannot create a dialogue. AI is not your enemy, your best friend. It's a tool. And the best way to be human is to engage in a conversation. And this has been Colliding World. And I thank you all for being a part of it.